Welcome to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring more than a half century's worth of devotionals and forums exploring the prophet's life and teachings. Be sure to also check out our newly released podcast entitled By Study and by Faith, showcasing BYU devotionals that blend reason and science with faith, university disciplines with discipleship, and the scholarly with the sacred. Visit speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more details. Joseph Smith as teacher, speaker, and counselor. I begin with a glimpse of three principles of teaching, which one can find in principle and in practice in what was called the School of the Prophets. You'll recall that early, even before the completion and dedication of the House of the Lord, the Lord commanded that a teacher be appointed, that was Parley P. Pratt, and then gave specific instructions on who should be admitted to the school, where they should meet, how they should greet each other and enter the school, and precisely how they should proceed and conduct. The spirit of those councils, I believe, applies to every gathering of Latter-day Saints. We cannot always duplicate exactly what they were taught, but as a clear sense of the attitudes that should prevail in classroom, council meeting, and one-on-one discussions. This, I believe, is universal in its worth. The prior point is that they were told that no one was to be admitted to this school except he be clean, clean, as the Lord put it, from the blood of this generation. That phrase troubled me for a time until I realized it didn't simply mean clean or, if you will, forgiven of the blood shed in that generation. That was the way I first interpreted it. But it meant, as I now believe, more still, it meant that these persons, by receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith and repentance and through the ordinances, would be cleansed, and whatever they had inherited, and all of us have inherited much, of the human, of the sinful, of the weak, down through the centuries, would be overcome until it would be proper to say that the impurities of the past had been redeemed in the present, in the personality. Well, that's a high requirement to impose on any man or woman. And yet, in faith, they aspired to it and sought to fulfill it. Having been given that charge, they were then taught, this, by the way, most of it in section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that three principles should prevail in their teaching process. First, they were not simply to listen to one speaker. 
Teacher was to be appointed, but then said the revelation, and let not all speak at once, but let every man speak in his own order, that when all have spoken, all may be edified of all, and that every man may have an equal privilege. That's a beautiful teaching principle the need for participation of each person present, contributing his insight and experience on a given theme. That's how they proceeded. But before that, and this was the second point, there was to be the establishing of a brotherly kinship. Once their relationship with Christ was clear and vivid, they were then to make covenants with each other. So they actually had a greeting given by revelation, whereby as they entered the room where the class was to obtain, they were to make covenant. And this is what they said according to the plan. Art thou a brother or brethren? And the leading high priest was to raise his arm in the spirit of a covenant. Art thou a brother or brethren? I salute you in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant, in which covenant I receive you to fellowship in a determination that is fixed, immovable, and unchangeable, to be your friend and brother. Let me pause to say that it interests me that the revelations begin by calling Joseph my servant, Joseph. Later, as he grew and became fully or more fully worthy, the Lord spoke of him of as my son, Joseph, my son. And finally, he is speaking of the prophet and others with him as my friends. Servant, son, friend, three beautiful relationships, not, I take it, stages in the progression of spiritual life, but levels of it. For in the end, we remain when we are th thoroughly and totally committed to Christ, servants, sons, and friends. Well, they were not a covenant with each other as brethren, which sons of the common father are, and as friends, to be your friend and brother, walking in obedience to the commandments, blameless forever. Amen. And then the person or persons to whom they had spoken that were likewise to make covenant and either reply, Amen, meaning so be it, or to repeat those precise words. Then, in that spirit, they entered the school. In one of the prophet's instructions to council meetings, he said there should be the greatest freedom and familiarity among leaders in Zion. Glorious as an ideal. But it was that very freedom, the openness of heart and soul, the sharing even of the most sacred 
of insight that was taken advantage of and led to the breakdown and breakup of the school of the prophets. For what they shared was often so intimate and so sacred that it required an immense amount of self-control not to share without properly checking or to bandy it about or to take advantage. And so the confidence that began was sometimes destroyed. But while it obtained, those brethren had the sweetest fellowship of our generation. They were brethren, and they loved each other, and the prophet himself was enabled in that setting, and perhaps only in that, to fully share things that he otherwise felt he must not. That which cometh from above, says section 63, and this is a caution not to the non-Mormon, it's given to the members of the church. That which cometh from above is sacred and must be spoken with care and by constraint of the Spirit, and ye receive the Spirit through prayer. Wherefore, without this, there remaineth condemnation. And then the Lord says to the church, let all men, meaning us, beware how they take my name in their lips. These things remain to be overcome by patience. Well, the prophet Joseph did not betray the sacred. His brethren did not. And only those who finally capitulated to weakness and temptation broke the bond. The third principle is in some respects as difficult. And in one word, it is concentration. Let me read you the exact words the prophet uttered at a council of high priests and elders in Kirtland. He said, no man is capable of judging a matter in council unless his own heart is pure. And that we frequently are so filled with prejudice or have a beam in our own eye that we are not capable of passing right decisions. In ancient days, councils were conducted with such strict propriety that no one was allowed to whisper, be weary. Now, that's a strange one. Not allowed to be weary. How can you prevent? Notice the, the assumption of the strength we have if we'll seek the Lord, even to cope with weariness. To whisper, to be weary, to leave the room, or get uneasy in the least until the voice of the Lord by revelation or the voice of the counsel by the Spirit, which he elsewhere says is the voice of the Lord, was obtained. This has not been observed in this church to the present time. It was understood in ancient days that if one man could stay in council, another could. And if the president could spend his time, the members could also. But in our councils, generally, one will be uneasy, another asleep, one praying, another not, one's mind on the business of the council, and another thinking on something else. 
the unity which the Lord promised as a presupposition of his most powerful responses to prayer comes from that kind of genuine concentration. I believe, again, that in the Prophet Joseph Smith we have a man of immense power in concentrating on the topic at hand. Well, those three principles, I suggest, in spirit at least, can undergird our general procedures wherever we seek to teach and counsel. Next, we turn to some of the responses of those who heard the prophet as a speaker and how they attempted to describe what they heard. Let me say first that so far as we can determine, the prophet never read a book on principles of what would then have been called rhetoric or elocution. And that what he had been counseled to do as speaker came straight through the channel of revelation. And in that mode, you remember, just to name three, while he was away on a mission, section 100, he is taught that he must be humble and taught that only when he is and seeks for the Spirit, only then will the Holy Ghost be shed forth in bearing record to all things that he shall say. And the Lord makes that a commandment. In section 88, with parallels elsewhere, there is the statement, treasure up continually the words of life, and it shall be given you in the very hour what ye shall speak. The last half of that promise is widely quoted in the church. The Lord will give you in the very hour what you should speak, but it has a prior phrase, if, to put in a conditional, if you treasure up continually the words of life, then, and the spirit of it is only then, will you be given in the very hour what you should say. Now the prophet was a man immensely weighted with every variety of responsibility and burden and was not able to have consistent and long periods of time for study, though he always found the time and made it for upreaching prayer and communion. But on one occasion he arose and said, my mind is not like other men. The business of the day so occupies me that I have to depend upon the Lord for occasions like this. And then he proceeded to deliver one of the greatest discourses of all time. He was treasuring up continually in all that that phrase entails, and therefore, I believe, was blessed with the discernment to know what should be given by way of milk here and what should be given by way of meat there. And incidentally, the prophet, loving, playful, and cheerful though he was, did not balk when he was inspired to rebuke or to admonish with sharpness. He went after the burden of the rebuke and showed forth as is commanded in section 121, an increase of love. But he could be towering when he rebuked and it could penetrate to the very vitals. One instance of this 
for example, as the story still taught in the descendants of Brigham Young, so far as I know, never recorded. There was a day when the prophet arose in a meeting, priesthood mainly present, and asked Brigham Young to stand. He arose, and then the prophet, in that setting, rebuked him from his head to his feet for doing something which, in fact, he hadn't done. I don't know any of the detail, whether it was an exaggerated story the prophet had heard and really believed, or whether, as is even more likely, he was deliberately putting Brigham to a test, a thing the prophet often did in his life. He finished, and every eye in the room waited, looking for what Brigham would say. Now remember, Brigham Young was a strong man. He could have said, haven't you been reading that you're not supposed to rebuke in public, but only in private? Or he might have said, you are dead wrong. Or he might have said, Joseph, doesn't it say something about persuasion and long-suffering and gentleness and meekness in the revelations? He said none of the above. In a voice that everyone knew was sincere, he said simply, Joseph, what do you want me to do? And the prophet burst into tears came down off the stand, threw his arms around Brigham and said, Brigham, you passed. Well, back to my point. He had been taught in Revelation to be humble. He had been taught to treasure up continually. And then there was the Lord's constant counsel. Section 50 gives it eloquent description. That without the Spirit, we are helpless. No matter what we know or think we know, without the Spirit, we are helpless. Literally, as it says in John, without me, Christ speaking, ye can do nothing. That's intimidating to those of us who are proud, but it is eternally true. And he knew it. And the revelation goes on to say, it's almost as if the Lord himself in this revelation is frustrated. He can't get this across. Why is it, the revelation says, that you cannot understand and know that he that teacheth and he that receiveth do so by the Spirit of God? Wherefore, both are edified and rejoice together. One of the high privileges of serving and teaching in this kingdom is that the teacher is as blessed, if not more so, than the student when the Spirit is present. And in fact, under the Spirit, every teacher himself learns. President Romney has said, for all of the brethren, I think, I know I was inspired tonight I taught things I did not until then know. The prophet Joseph sought for that spirit. And it was that 
more than any other quality one can name that gave his words convincing power. To Hiram, who aspired early to go into the mission field, a special revelation was given, and it says, among other things, seek not to declare my word, but seek first to obtain my word, and then shall your tongue be loosed, then you shall have my spirit and my word, yea, the power of God unto the convincing of men. The Lord's definition of his spirit and his word in one phrase is the power of God unto the convincing of men. Hiram came to that, so his brother Joseph came to it. But now to turn to witnesses. William Walker, hard worker with his hands, who occasionally helped the prophet in the outdoor world, said this, looking back, the excellency of the glory of the character of Brother Joseph was that he could reduce heavenly things to the understanding of the finite. When he preached to the people, he reduced his teachings to the capacity of every man. The prophet, by the way, said, speaking of Christ, if he comes to a little child, he will speak in the language of a little child. In section one, the Lord's preface of the Doctrine and Covenant says, I have spoken in man's language, in so many words. He has to. That is all we have to work with at this stage. But the Spirit takes us beyond those small chopping blocks of meaning. The capacity of every man, woman, and child, making them as plain as a well-defined pathway. Wilford Woodruff, February 1837. He had been absent from Kirtland on business, but I went to the house of the Lord to hear the prophet Joseph address the people for several hours. Though he had not been away half as long as Moses was in the mount, yet many were stirred up in their hearts, and some were against him, as the Israelites were against Moses. But when he arose in the power of God in the midst of them, they were put to silence, for the murmurers saw that he stood in the power of the prophet of the Lord our God. Emmeline Wells, the power of God rested upon him to such a degree that on many occasions he seemed transfigured. His expression was mild and almost childlike in repose. And when addressing the people who loved him, it seemed to adoration, the glory of his countenance was beyond description. At other times, the great power of his manner, more than of his voice, seemed to shake the place on which we stood and penetrated the inmost soul of his hearers. And I was sure then they would have laid down their lives to defend him. In one of his private councils, he spoke to several of the brethren and warned them against a kind of false or strained tone of voice that could develop in the pulpit or in speaking. It was as if, and there are other sources for this, he was saying that the 
most natural is also the most approved of God, the most conversational mode of speaking, rather than a falsetto or a strain or a tense or an overblown kind of eloquence. Says Mary Frost, I stood close by the prophet while he was preaching to the Indians in the grove by the temple. Incidentally, on one occasion he was speaking to such a group and he had an Indian agent from the government who was supposed to be his translator. The agent, whose motives were not in favor of the Mormons, was modifying and in some case mutilating what the prophet said. And the prophet became aware of that, asked him to cease translation, and then spoke to the Indians in their own tongue. The Holy Spirit lighted up his countenance till it glowed like a halo around him, and the Indians looked as solemn as eternity. Said Lorenzo Snow, the prophet Joseph Smith was not a natural orator, but his sentiments were so sublime and far-reaching that everyone was eager to hear his discourse. Says the mother of Edward L. Stevenson, I heard him relate his first vision when the father and the son appeared to him. Also his receiving the gold plates from the angel Moroni. This recital was given in compliance with a special request of a few particular friends in the home of Sister Walton, whose house was ever open to the saints. While he was relating the circumstances, the prophet's countenance lighted up, and so wonderful a power accompanied his words that everybody who heard them felt his influence and power, and none could doubt the truth of his narration. So many are the written testimonies of the prophet's countenance being somehow alight or illumined that even Von Brody, who of course is a thoroughgoing naturalist who thinks of Joseph as a self-deceived imposter, even she has to take account of all the evidence, and her explanation is he was anemic. Oliver B. Huntington, in the morning of Sunday, when the weather was favorable, we attended meeting ground. And that was the, the ground area where they were building the temple. And with what eagerness did the people assemble to hear the words of the prophet. One lecture from his mouth well repaid me for all my troubles and journeyings to this land, which were not a few. Angus M. Cannon. He was one of the grandest samples of manhood I ever saw walk or ride at the head of a legion of men. In listening to him as he has addressed the saints, his words have so affected me that I would rise upon my feet in the agitation that would take hold of my mind. Lydia Bailey. The prophet commenced, this was in Canada, Ontario, the prophet commenced by relating the scenes of his early life. He told how the angel visited him, 
of his finding the plates, the translation of them, and a short account of the matter contained in the Book of Mormon. As the speaker continued, I saw his face become white, and a shining glow seemed to beam from every feature. She joined the church. There is much else, but enough has been read to show that those who came hungering and thirsting and listened in faith, whatever may have been the natural gifts of the prophet as a speaker, felt and responded to the Spirit of God. Let me now choose just one example of a simple discourse which changed a man's life. The prophet was speaking on one verse of the book of John, 3, 5. Except a man be born again, says the verse, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then you recall comes the question, how can this be? Can a man enter the second time into his mother's womb? And then the master says, I say unto you, Except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The prophet's discourse revolved around the distinction between seeing the kingdom of God and entering the kingdom of God. He explained that one must have a kind of pre-birth, a kind of preliminary rebirth, even to recognize that the kingdom of God is in fact with us, among us. And by the way, he changed the word in in that verse, in the inspired version. The verse that says the kingdom of God is within you, it reads in the inspired version, the kingdom of God is among you. One has to have a rebirth even to see it. The scales have to fall in a measure by the influence of the Spirit before one recognizes there is the Lord's kingdom, and here am I outside of it. Once that happens, if the seed of faith then is generated, he then comes to the point where he will receive it in its first principles and ordinances. Then he enters the kingdom of God. Well, this young man heard that discourse and was ready for baptism. He became one of our great patriarchs. We've said then something about his teaching role and something about his speaking role. Now I've used the word counselor, and he was that. And there's a little bit of a difference between speaking and testifying and teaching and then being in that setting where soul is alone with soul. And in this, again, the prophet was a master. I've indicated that he occasionally, deliberately, knowingly put men to a test, almost as if he could discern unerringly a certain weakness or vulnerability or something to which they were clinging, holding back from the Lord. He would proceed to test them. Bishop Edwin D. Woolley, a forebear, incidentally, of our present president. A stubborn man, he himself said it. A contrary was the word they used a hundred years ago. And someone said of him, if he dies by drowning, look for the body upstream. 
Edwin D. Woolley had a store in Nauvoo. And one day the prophet walked in and said, Brother Woolley, the church needs all of your store goods. I'd like them boxed up. I'll be back for them tomorrow. Turned and walked out. <clears throat> Brother Woolley did as he was asked. When the prophet came the next day, here were the boxes. But there were still quite a few things on the shelves. Noticing that the prophet noticed, Brother Woolley said, Joseph, those goods are on consignment from St. Louis. If you want those, I'll box them up and pay for them too. The prophet said, do you mean, Brother Woolley, that you're willing to give all of your store goods to the church? Yes, sir. He put his arms around him and with moist eyes said, the Lord bless you. Now put them back on the shelves. A second, you're all aware that Heber C. Kimball was tried to the core. I've mentioned that Brigham had his tests. Brother Heber's story is almost untellable. It is too strong. It is too much. I believe there are people in the church who would say in their hearts that the test of Abraham is too much. A loving God would not require such a thing of any man. Last of all, someone as faithful as Abraham. If you've had that thought, you better think again. Modern Revelation clearly says three different places that you and I must one day be tried, even as Abraham. And when I put the question once to President Brown in Israel, why was Abraham commanded to go up on that mount, traditionally Mount Moriah, and offer his only hope of posterity? President Brown wisely replied, Abraham needed to learn something about Abraham. All of us will one day know how much our hearts are really set on the kingdom of God by testing. Well, as for Brother Heber, without the detail, only that he first was commanded, and that's the word, not counsel, to take another wife and family, and in that terribly difficult setting, told he must not yet confide this to his own companion, the late, whom he loved with a pure love and with whom he had shared his life from the day together they entered the church. You read sometime the record of that conversion. They were both grown and seasoned when they received the gospel. The moment after baptism they were confirmed, dripping wet, kneeling on the ground, and then Brother Heber was on the same ground, ordained to the priesthood. He tried to prevent it, cried out he wasn't worthy, but he was given it. But before that happened, a voice spoke to him, gave him some insight into his origins, his genealogy, and also told him some things pertaining to the future. But one thing he was told by the Spirit, even then, was that he and his wife, Valate, would never be separated. Now he's being asked by a prophet 
to be separate, in a sense. Brother Heber did not eat or drink or sleep for four days and four nights. And dear Valate begged him to tell her what was wrong, and he couldn't and wouldn't. Finally, she, in faith and need, went out and knelt and prayed and asked, What is it, O Lord? How can I help my beloved? And the Lord saw fit to give her a living manifestation. She saw and heard unspeakable things, came in, her face aglow, and said, Heber, what the Lord, or what you would not reveal to me, the Lord has. And it is all right, my love. It is all right. And he came up out of his bed and embraced her with a joy comparable to little else in his life. Heber passed. And the prophet, in tears on one occasion, took him and his wife Philate upstairs in his own store and blessed them personally and sealed upon them blessings that only come to those who have come up through affliction. Right. As a counselor, therefore, the prophet was not merely a sentimentalist, not one who simply indulged and tried to pat someone on the back and say, well, it's all right, and glossed the difficulties. He saw instead his role, a difficult one, to put his finger on the real need. Another example recorded by Jesse Crosby is of a woman who had been, she felt, maligned unjustly because of gossip. The little evils, said the prophet Joseph, do the most damage in the church. And uh, added to that, he said, the devil flatters us that we're very righteous while we are feeding on the faults of others. And elsewhere, he said, the Savior has the words of eternal life. She really want to prize words. The Savior has the words of eternal life. Nothing else can profit us. And then in order to make the point, he added, there is no salvation in believing an evil report against your neighbor. Certainly isn't. But this sister had been troubled and came and asked for redress. She wanted the prophet now to go to the person who was the source and properly take care. He inquired of her in some detail and then said, Sister, when I have heard of a story about me, and he could have said, There have been many. I sit down and think about it and pray about it. And I ask myself the question, did I say something or was there something about my manner to give some basis for that story to start? And sister, often if I think about it long enough, I realize I have done something to give that basis. And there wells up in me a forgiveness of the person who has said it and a resolve that I will never do it again. One of the great qualities of the Prophet Joseph, not always characteristic of others, is that when he was wrong, he acknowledged it. The Lord rebuked him repeatedly. Those revelations are published alongside of the revelations where he has given promises and blessings. He didn't have to do that. He might have suppressed 
the personal private rebukings and let the church believe that uh, he'd gone along pretty well without lapsings and slipping. No. And when others found fault with him, instead of encountering, putting all of the blame on them, the spirit of his counsel to this sister and to himself was otherwise. Look deeper, brother, and see if maybe there is a kernel of truth in what they're saying. That, I suggest to you, is wisdom. Farley P. Pratt records a time when he came much upset. I don't know the detail, and he sees fit to leave it general in his autobiography, but there had been some things said about him, and he was angry. And he came to the prophet and laid it on him. And the final sentence of the prophet's counsel, after listening sympathetically, and that's, by the way, another gift to be a powerful listener. Is that a contradiction in terms? It is not. There are listeners that are weak as water, not listening at all, not hearing, not interpreting from the center self. But he listened powerfully. It's all through and then says, oh, Parley, walk such things under your feet. Go on with the work. Meaning, of course, it's trivial. Don't let it wear you down. He may have learned that from the inspiration of his retranslation because those verses having to do with uh, forgiving and uh, moving on, going the second mile, it's clear were some of them specially directed to the twelve. They were told not to go to the law. He that goes to the law shall be cursed by the law. Not to exact their just due, even if it were in fact just. They were told, move on. You haven't time to take up offense with each little thing that happens in a given day. Get on with the work of the ministry. Some of us think that our calling is to draw a line and spend our lives seeing that nobody steps over it. Not so. Not a disciple of Christ. Well, having given you those glimpses, one more. Brigham. In my experience, I never did let an opportunity pass of getting with the Prophet Joseph and of hearing him speak in public or in private so that I might draw understanding from the fountain from which he spoke. See, he's not ascribing it to Joseph the man. He recognized that there was a fountain to which this man had access. That's what he treasured and prized. That I might have it and bring it forth when it was needed. Brigham said, by the way, in the spring of 1844, Joseph, you're laying out enough work for 20 years. The prophet replied, that's right, Brigham, and you are going to do it. <laughs> in the days of the prophet Joseph, continuing, such moments were more precious to me than all the wealth of the world. Now, Brigham has been criticized as a temporally-minded man, a money-minded man, even, as some have said, an autocrat. Well, Brigham had a capacity for earning and, and for spending. And he was a man who understood 
basic principles of economics. But I want to say to you, the Prophet Joseph well knew that and knew that when Brigham consecrated his efforts, far from that being a weakness, to be blindly condemned, it would be in the hands of the Lord a blessing. He says that he treasured Joseph's words in public or private more than all the wealth of the world. He meant it. No matter how great my poverty, if I had to borrow a meal to feed my wife and children, I never let an opportunity pass of learning what the prophet had to impart. This is the secret of success of your humble servant. Brigham never claimed he was a great leader, independent of Joseph. Some have said, ah, oh, yes, Joseph was the spiritual leader. Brigham was the colonizer. A distortion. Brigham went with Joseph on a march approximately the same length, Kirtland to Independence, as from Winter Quarters to Salt Lake. He learned much of what he knew about how to command a body of men in the spirit of Israel firsthand and in a laboratory with Joseph Smith. And having said that that's the secret of his own success, and he said this one year before his death, he added, I make this application to the elders of Israel. Closing then on this subject, the prophet was, whatever his natural gifts, supernaturally blessed as he sought it to teach, to speak, and to counsel. And in the end, when Josiah Quincy said to him, you have too much power, the prophet replied with a certain smile, in the hands of others, this would be too much power. But you forget, I am a prophet of God. He was. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.